About a year ago, let's say a year ago today for lying's sake, my friend Steve came over to my apartment and told me that he'd seen this car parked across the street from my house that hadn't moved for months. We looked out the window and he pointed to a 1980s sedan something or other, painted a few different shades of beige with a nice, bright, crudely coated white door. It's what in high school I would have called a hoopty. Do people say hoopty? Anyway, it was parked on Butler in a non-meter zone, free parking, across the street from a popular neighborhood bakery. And Steve was right. This thing did not move. Every day after, I'd come home from work and see it there, in the same exact spot, and I'd check a little box in my head that said, car still there. Now, there are plenty of reasons a car doesn't move for extended periods of time. People die, and less morbidly, cars die. And beyond that, maybe it was just owned by a baker who arrived each morning before I left and left each night after I got home. Bakers are notorious early risers. So I tabled this story, bookmarked it in my head, and moved on with my life. Winter happened, or continued to happen. Remember, this was one year ago today. Snow fell, and then melted, and then fell again, and the car stayed still. The bakers baked, croissants were picked over, and little kids had sword fights with baguettes. The car did not move. Then in April of 2015, I came home one day to find the car was gone. And I thought, damn it. What a waste of time. I had been telling everybody about the car. I asked everybody I knew in Lawrenceville about it. My friends asked me for updates. And now, just as mysteriously as it had been parked there, it was no longer parked there. Months passed. Spring happened. That snow from before, it melted. The bakers kept baking. Hungover city paper writers ate croissants. Birds chirped. My one-time, half-interesting story about a half-mysterious car could now be accurately summarized with, I once saw a car. So I moved on again. Summer happened. And while it was happening, in July of 2015 to be specific, I finally saw it again. This time I was walking to get groceries and passed by the excellently named home improvement store Busy Beaver, and that's where I saw it. It was in the far corner, far from the entrance to the store, facing north, four tires on the ground. You know how parking works. I dusted off the box in my head and checked it. Still there. Again. I wanted answers, but more than that, I wanted to make sure that there were answers to be had. So I kept tabs on it for a few weeks to see if it moved from that spot. It didn't. Still there. Then in early August, I made up a new email address, aginquiry22 at gmail.com. And then I wrote the car owner a handwritten letter in all caps for some reason. And this is what it said. Dear car owner, my name's Alex. I live in this neighborhood and I've noticed this car parked here for a while, as well as across the street from my apartment for several months this winter. I'm not complaining or anything and I don't want to waste your time. I'm simply curious about this car and why it's parked and doesn't move for months at a time. I have so many questions, but I understand if you don't want to talk to me. But if you do, please email aginquiry22 at gmail.com. Thanks. Alex, August 8th. 
2015. I left the note on the car's windshield and waited. Weeks passed. Summer happened. And eventually so did autumn. I'd walk by the busy beaver about once a week to check to see if the car was still there. And more importantly, to see if the note had been taken and read. The car was there, but so was the note on the windshield. And I thought, what the hell, car owner? Read the note. Sporadically throughout the fall, I would check aginquiry22 at gmail.com, and each time my only email was from somebody named Gmail Team, who I do not know. Then, just as mysteriously as it had been parked and moved and parked again, the car was gone. No sign of it. Car and note missing entirely from the parking lot. I was dejected, but stubborn. I spent bus rides perpetually glued to the glass looking for the unmistakable clash of beige and white that I had spent so many hours thinking about. But there was no sign of it. The thing was gone. Winter happened, again, and here we are, one year later, to the day. No closer to the answers, but with one small change. I'm the host of this podcast. I have access to literally dozens of ears attached to heads with eyes that might be able to spot this thing somewhere in town. They might even know the story behind it. They might even be the driver. You might even be the driver. There's no way of knowing. But I would like to know. Okay, so there's a 90% chance nothing will ever happen with this story. And within that 10% chance that something does happen... There's another 90% chance that the answer is boring as hell. Like the car died and was towed to Busy Beaver for safekeeping. Or it's owned by like an indoorsy person who doesn't go out much and never uses their car and prefers to park for free. Smart. Or maybe it's a former baker turned Busy Beaver employee who arrives before I wake up and leaves before I come home. These are all possible possibilities. But there's still that 1% chance that this car has a story worth telling. Maybe this whole thing strikes you as self-amused navel-gazing, or maybe it's just intrusive, and I don't mean to do either. Honestly, I just get jacked up about stuff like this. Stories that teeter between pointless and uh, not pointless. And I'd like to hear your stories like this. So today, I'm opening up aginquiry22 at gmail.com to any stories like this that you may have. Weird shit in your neighborhood that makes no sense and deserves a second look. All stories are welcome. But if you see that car, goddamn, let me know. Happy hunting. Welcome to the City Paper Podcast. I'm Alex Gordon. Today we're back with editor Charlie Deach telling us about a supposedly fun thing he would do again. Celine visits an herbalist and producer Ashley Murray checks out a pinball tournament. Can't wait for you to hear it, and you don't have to wait. Here it is. Welcome, everybody, to the state championship. Congratulations for qualifying. A couple rules. just general stuff. Uh, if the game has a sign on it, it's eligible for play. Hi, this is Doug Polka. We're here at the 2015 IFBA Pinball State Championship. 
Each year, the IFPA, or the International Flipper Pinball Association, offers tournaments throughout the world. Players accumulate points according to difficulty and length of the games, and then they receive a world ranking. Today, 37 states and various countries are holding championship series. Pennsylvania State Championship is being held in a discreet building on a back street in the south side, where the Pittsburgh Pinball League is housed. How is the competition set up and how long will it take today? The tournament is a head-to-head -head bracket, best of seven. Depending on how long each of the matches go, it's probably going to take about five or six hours to get wrapped up today. He was wrong. The whole thing took about eight hours, but we'll get to that later. After learning the rules of the game, I immediately wanted to find out who was the state champ last year. I learned it was Mahesh Murthy, and I asked him how he did it. A good streak, you know, you kind of get through a, a tough match early on. They're all best of seven, so you kind of have the time to get adjusted and get comfortable. And then once I started feeling comfortable and started playing like my normal game, then I felt I could potentially win this thing. And what kind of bragging rights come with being the state champion? Oh, it's more embarrassing than anything else because then I'll come around and people like, you know, say, oh, here's the Pennsylvania state champion. He's going to beat us. But really, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of great players in this area. Do you have a favorite machine? I'm looking around. I see Metallica, Game of Thrones. Flash Gordon, Family Guy, Twilight Zone, I see Twilight Zone. I would say Attack from Mars over there. Um, there's a lot of cool objectives, and in the end, you can rule the universe if you uh, conquer the game. <laughs> After my conversations with Mahesh, the games got underway. So right now, eight matchups are in round one. So that's 16 players, and they're playing best of seven games seeing a lot of intense faces. People are sort of slapping or punching the machine in anger. I'm sure you've noticed by now, but I haven't spoken to any ladies. For the majority of the day, I was one of four women in the room. It was a little uncomfortable at first, so I quickly made friends with the females who were there. Ashley Minton and Ann Gibson, both from Philly, were there as moral support for their husbands who were competing. They made a joke that they were the real housewives of pinball. But make no mistake, they played in a tournament last night, and they're in another one tomorrow. So this is my first assignment covering uh, pinball, um, and can you give me a primer of what I should be looking for? Um, one of the most important things that I think is a, I don't want to say a novice mistake, but a lot of people just tend to do reactionary without thinking is flipping both flippers at the same time. Don't do that. Um, because it leaves a bigger gap for the ball to drain down the middle if it is going towards. Usually you want to just try and do one at a time. Sometimes it's okay to do it a little. To do Here your goal is more to get a higher score than your opponents. Uh, and there's constraints put on the machines. They're harder today than they normally would be because it's a tournament setting. My favorite pinball machine is Scared Stiff, which is an Elvira Mistress of the Night themed 
pinball machine with a lot of double entendres and some really oh, yes. deep rules in gameplay. Um, I'm going to pick Bram Stoker's Dracula because um, it's very challenging. Uh, the artwork is very beautiful, um, but it also teaches you how to be disciplined. Um, and it's got lightning flippers. It's very. It can be very cruel. Unfortunately, both their husbands got out. At about the fourth hour of the tournament, I decided to give it a try myself. One of the, quote, pinball wives, A.J. Replova, decided to give me a lesson. By the way, she's ranked 93rd in Pennsylvania. We start on a 1934 machine called Starpool. This thing spins and will, like, throw your ball in a different direction than you expected to. And then basically you just want to stop it from going that way or going this way. Okay. So this is a pretty straightforward kit. If you've ever looked at an old pinball machine versus a new one, there are differences. Besides just the obvious bells and whistles on the new ones, they're also angled upward way more steeply than the older ones. This 1930s machine we played on had dials on the back with 10 digits. The dials flipped and it showed us our score. It was pretty cool. You want to hit left or right. You want to have a little more control. Okay. Whereas you were just kind of like, it's coming close. It's coming close. <laughs> Which is very common for like first time. <laughs> so now I'm going to try a new machine to feel the difference from the 1934 one. So this has newer flippers, newer rubbers. The Everything about it is more, it's not from 1930s. <laughs> uh, oh no. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're back to both flippers. I know, I know. It's just my panic motion. Let's just say I lost. After my brief career as a pinball player, it was time to get back to the real action. By this time, even the reigning state champ had gotten beat by another player named Al Tomkin. How did it feel to beat the reigning state champ? Uh, it feels good, but I mean, I play Mahesh all the time. We're both local pinball people, and we... We end up playing all the time. In fact, in our league, it, uh, our group this week was myself, John, and Mahesh, all three of the top 200 in the in the world. So, um, you know, we get to play play together a lot against top-tier competition here in Pittsburgh. For two hours, two players named Chris Stevens and David Ryle played for a spot in the semifinals. For the record, Chris Stevens is ranked 18th in the world, according to IFPA. But David, or DJ, sometimes people call him that, he advances. And the finals are decided. Al Tomka loses, and John Rafloga moves on. His wife, AJ, is the one who gave me my pinball lesson. And David Ryle beat Philly native Ken Martin. At the eighth hour of the state championships, there were only eight people left in the room. Two of them were actually over at a different pinball machine doing their own thing. But finally, there was a winner. How does it feel to be the state champion? It's awesome. They're going to make fun of me all year. And uh, is that right? 
but now I'm state champion of Pennsylvania. <laughs> so. so you played uh, a long day today. And how do you feel coming in second place? I mean, John's not uh, ranked uh, 27th or whatever in the world for nothing. So <laughs> uh, he's got me more times than I've gotten him. To see the World Pinball Rankings for yourself, check out a link that we have on our podcast page at pghcitypaper.com. The World Championship is also played right here in Carnegie, so catch that this April. All right, now it's time for my talk with editor Charlie Deach, telling us about his cruise last week. How'd it go, Chuck? I was on one other cruise in my life for my wife's birthday. It, it wasn't as big as all that. It was about 2,000, 2,500 people, and they were all there, I think, for the same reason, which was to have this sort of you know, love boat style, you know, sailing away to faraway lands vacation where you could eat anything you wanted, drink anything you wanted. And, uh, you know, I think everyone there expected uh, expected to have, you know, the time of their lives. I mean, it's a lot of pressure, right? Yeah. It's uh, you save up money, you save up paid time off. Yeah. And you're basically gambling it by saying all of it, all of it is riding on this one week. So, I mean... I'm not saying I support people complaining about every little thing, right. but I mean, I can kind sure. of understand why. Right, and for me, I, I, yeah, I totally get that, and I don't mind. I don't mind people complaining if you're not getting what you're paying for, but there's something that happens where it's sort of like that ugly American syndrome, where you get in a situation like that, and you are, you have this feeling come over you that you are all of a sudden you're Thurston Howe from Gilligan's Island. All of a sudden, you are the millionaire. Even though you paid, maybe you paid eight hundred dollars, maybe you paid a thousand dollars to get on, you paid for the for the millionaire experience in your mind, and so you're going to make sure you get that, and that's totally fine. If the food's not up to your specs, send it back. If the drink isn't right, if the banana daiquiri is too watery, send it back. My problem comes in with how people treat the people who work on these ships, right. and there were a lot of people who would just sort of yell, snap fingers, and I, I really don't I, – I look at someone's name who's not from this country, and I think, how do I say that properly? I look at the man's name tag, and I think, oh, his name is Siva, who was a gentleman that I met who worked on this. He was from Dubai, and he was a very nice kid. He was saving up money for his – making money for his wedding. And uh, we had some nice conversations and stuff, and um, – I can't tell you how many people, old, older folks especially, would yell at him and call him Steve. And I would say, his name's not Steve, it's Siva, and <laughs> which would be met with, what does it matter? And, you know, and these people, of course, they, they take care of you with a smile and, and, you know, bring you whatever you want and try to be cheerful. And, uh, you know, it's, I think that there's just something that comes over some people where they just sort of, Either I don't know. I I was going to say that they forget that they have manners, but maybe they never really had that to begin with, or maybe they think that that's how people act when they, you know, are in this type of situation. I was going to say I think part of the luxury is that indulging in holding that high standard. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's and not being displeased is actually part of the indulgence. Yeah. Exactly. It's not just like having you know a steak for breakfast every morning, which I did try and do. But it's also, yes, the idea of being someone else, someone who would go on these kinds of things all the time when, you know, 
I can't imagine that I would ever run into Bill Gates. <laughs> you know what I mean? On yeah. this cruise, I would never run into, uh, uh, you know, someone like that. You know, taking one of these journeys. But I think people just get in their mind of what of what luxury is and what they deserve when they when they pay a price. And again, it's not always you know all you can eat or all you can drink. It's all I can act like a fool. You know, it's just sort of piling that on as well. So it's a little tough. You know, well, you've expressed some ambivalence about this. Um, I want to ask, would you go on another cruise? Yeah, I probably would. Yeah, I, I, this is like I said, this is my second one because um, I was with my wife and some other friends, and it was you know it was a great time to be with people that I haven't seen very, I don't see very often, um, and really you can you can make it what you want. I mean, you can take from it what you want to take from it. You can make it what you want to. Um, just by sort of, you know, living in your living in your own world. And um, yeah, I would I would probably do it again because it is convenient. It's a way to see. I've never been to Central America. And in the span of a week, I was in both Honduras and Belize. And it was um, great to go around and see these countries. And um, but that that's what you have to do. You have to make sure that you that you take advantage of where you're going and really, you know, don't just get off the ship to go and have a, you know, to have a a margarita, but, you know, go find something and learn something about where you are. And that's what I tried to do. So. Yeah, too often it breaks down to just getting drunk in other countries. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I think. Yes, it's just, it's like spring break. And I think at some point you have to out, you have to outgrow that, 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 uh, that mindset. But a lot of people don't. And that's what, that's what this week, past week taught me is a lot of people don't. So many people can't accept the change. Unknown when you don't look the same. When everything's political, some votes are left to chance. Give power to the people, together we can take a stand. We don't need no confederate. Thanks, Chuck. A personal note here if you're looking for a profoundly morose look at cruise ships. Check out John Ronson's book, Lost at Sea, in which he investigates commercial cruise ship deaths on the high seas. Anyway, on a lighter note, let's head to Celine Roberts now for Soundbite, where she connects with Ola Abassi at her herbal medicine shop in Squirrel Hill. Abassi came to the U.S. at 16 to study pharmacy, but she decided administering medicines with side effects and then administering more medicine to alleviate the side effects was not for her. She tells Celine about her childhood in Eastern Africa and how that influenced her decision to practice traditional herbal healing. This week on Soundbite, we're here with Ola Obasi at Ola's Herb Shop in Squirrel Hill to talk to her about how food can be used as medicine. Hello. So you'd mentioned wintertime as being a, a time of introspection, but I also see a lot of people, myself included, mm-hmm. struggling with feeling drained. Mm-hmm. Um, and that being a, a common winter ailment, mm-hmm. how might you treat someone mm-hmm. for that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In general, in the winter time, drink more warm fluids, drink more herbal teas, um, and get a lot of rest. Eat foods that are, we would call, you know, your hearty, healthy, uh, nourishing foods, like your sweet potatoes, um, you know, if you eat meat, bone broths, um, you know, so that sort of thing, dense vegetables, uh, collard greens, mustard greens, kale, 
as far as herbal would go, once in a while, take tonics, you know, herbs that include mushrooms, for instance, like reishi mushrooms or chaga mushrooms, um, shiitake mushrooms, all the different various mushrooms that are pretty much in the market right now uh, would really be supportive of the adrenal glands, which is what that drain feeling really is coming from, the adrenal glands being exhausted or needing ton- to be tonified to, for you to meet the cold and, you know, the challenge of the constriction of the time. Maybe I'll let you taste something. That would be great. So we'll do a little experiment thing that I've done with some of my students. It's a lot of fun. So I've got Gymnema sylvestra here. It's a a herb from India. It's an Ayurvedic herb. Um, It's really good for diabetes, sugar, helping people with sugar resistance, insulin resistance issues. Um, So it's fun because it it really impacts the, the... tongue immediately so i all i had you all taste some chocolate with sugar in there and you're gonna taste some of this gymnema so we can hear its leaves dried up glass and i'm just gonna put some in your hand and i'd like you to chew and what does it taste like Bitter. Mm-hmm. Not as appealing. Yes, not as appealing. Not nearly as appealing. Right. Therefore, you know, if I gave this to someone who has diabetes who still likes eating their sugar, they would stop eating the sugar as it tastes. They perceive sugar differently. And how would you apply that? Would you have them eat a handful when they were craving sugar? No. I, w- I mean, I could. But uh, for compliance purposes, not many people as open-minded as you and I are to just sort of shove some leaves in our mouth. So I would have to create a tea. (laughs) Um, So can you tell me how you came to herbal medicine? Uh, Well, it started um, in my youth as a young girl growing up in Africa and spending time with my grandparents in rural areas. Um, so just watching people generally using plants to heal themselves. Um, so that was my first, you know, I, it seemed normal at that time. So it wasn't like herbal medicine separate from conventional. Do you have a initial memory of something that sticks out to you? For me, the early, uh, the early learnings were in herb walks walking with my elder, there's this particular elder man, uh, my great uncle, who took me on herb walks. One of the first learnings uh, or teachings that I had was knowing all my uh, poisons. So that's the first, you know, you've got to learn your poisons and then you learn the antidotes. Then we can talk about the medical, you know, herbal medicine, the everyday. (laughs) So that stands out for me. That was nice. Did you want me to show you something else? I would love to see whatever you'd like to show me. Okay. One of my favorite herbs, maybe this will bring some joy to you. This is um, Elateria cardamomum, a.k.a. cardamom. And you can feel the aroma, you know, coming through your nasal passage, which is good for this time of the year. Mm. Traditionally used for flatulence. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do I chew it? Chew it, yeah. 
Uh, it's very strong, so you might want to just keep one at a time. Don't put all in your mouth if you haven't done. I guess I should have warned you before. But I like it when people kind of explore it in a massive way, knowing that it's safe. That, oh, wow, it really is spicy. And it's really aromatic. So we just ate the seeds whole, mm -hmm. and now you're grinding them into a powder. Mm -hmm. Would you sprinkle that on food, or would you still sort of just drop it on your tongue? How would you, how would you administer that? If I want to have someone use it or myself use it for long term I would use it in cooking you can cook it in soups or you know with your food um, you can also make teas with it I love making milk with cardamom and adding some raw honey oh yeah that's my one of my favorite drinks that's the good stuff yeah you can also use it uh, topically you know if you want to just have a little spice bath just put a little bit in in your water in your bath water I feel like um, it's so it's such a common experience for people who are home cooks especially or mm -hmm. who like to cook mm -hmm. to look at their spice cabinet and only see it as that mm -hmm. I, I do it all the time mm -hmm. and then to have an experience like this where you stop and you sample something mm -hmm. and you realize it's beyond the spice yeah it's powerful yes in this very large but also incredibly small way yes 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 it's one of the reasons why i love working with plants because i've i have come to realize in myself that's how i also want to be plants have taught me to be humble at least to continue to working towards humility and be have humility at the forefront of my everyday movements and actions and interactions but as well as be confident you know, and be yourself uniquely, because all the herbs are different, you know, and they all have their unique um, properties, their unique uh, features, and it's okay to stand uniquely in whoever you are, born to be. So for me, you know, herbs have really taught me that, you know, to be confident in my uniqueness, whatever that is. I can't do any better than that. <laughs> I can't do any better than that. Thank you so much for joining us on Soundbite this week. It's been a, a delight to meet you and talk about herbs and plants and food with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me and thank you for coming too and being interested in this topic. You can visit Ola at her shop at Apothecary on Forbes Avenue. It's right above 10,000 Villages. Just look for the sign that says Ola's Herb Shop. We're also going to link to it on our website. Now it's time for the weekend calendar with Celine Roberts. What's happening, Celine? Start off Thursday evening with some literary entertainment at the Belleville Arts Collective with TNY Presents Poetry Series. Full disclosure, I'm a member. This month is filled with four local writers who will be reading everything from erotica to flash fiction. The event is BYOB, so bring a beer and listen to a story or two. Winter wouldn't feel the same without the joys that a bowl of steaming soup can bring on a cold day. Vote for your favorite bowl at the South Side Soup Contest on Saturday. The proceeds will benefit the Brashear Association, whose food pantry provides meals to a thousand low-income people and families. Combining the symphony and Shakespeare might be the apex of a cultural highbrow evening. 
To absorb some of this cred, you'll need to head to the Palace Theatre for the Westmoreland Symphony Orchestra's program, Shakespeare in Love. You can transport yourself all the way to the other side of the world by heading to Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall for Dear Rena 2016. On Saturday, this Indian classical dancing showcase for collegiate dance teams will celebrate and express their culture. Driving music and colorful clothing abound, but make sure while you're watching you grab an Indian snack or two for a full immersion experience. A stuck-up rat, a slow-witted pig, and a boy detective with a polar bear sidekick are all the creations of cartoonist Stefan Pestis. Peek inside the mind of this man at the Carnegie Lecture Hall on Sunday afternoon to hear about his adventures with his characters. Stick around for a lemonade reception and a book signing afterward. For more ideas, check out our listings. I'm Celine Roberts. Get out there and have some fun. Thanks, Celine. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We're still untitled, more or less, but we are closer than ever to having the best damn podcast name you've ever heard. But for now, this is Pittsburgh City Paper Podcast. This thing is produced by me and Ashley Murray, with help from Celine Roberts and Charlie Deach. This episode featured the song No Confederate Nation by The Freedom Band, and that song's available for download on our webpage, pghcitypaper.com. Some of the other music you heard in this episode, and in fact all episodes to date, were composed by me, Alex Gordon. But just the songs you like, the other ones were somebody else. Pittsburgh City Paper is on all the best social media sites like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at those places at PGH City Paper. Thanks so much for listening. Now, go find that car.